Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schirmer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. Hope everyone had a great weekend. Today, I'm in Atlanta, Georgia for the Assessment and Grading Conference. I'm going to be here for today and tomorrow. And then tomorrow night, I'm going to fly to Salt Lake City for the two-day Grading from the Inside Out training. So it's a busy week of travel, and I've been talking about these two events uh, throughout the spring. One more event to remind you of this spring. That's the Assessment Center Institute that's happening in Las Vegas, Nevada. That'll be May 24th through 26th. I have a link in the show notes for that event as well. Also, excited to announce that my new book is finally out. It's called Redefining Student Accountability, A Proactive Approach to Teaching Behavior Outside the Gradebook. I also have a link in the show notes for the book. And I'm going to talk about the book throughout the podcast today, so just like I did last time. So hang on in a moment, and I'll explain what I'm going to do today. Okay, thanks for tuning in again this week. A big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time, and a big thank you to longtime listeners. I certainly appreciate all of you. This week, my guest is Shanik Roy. Shanik is the founder of Yellowdig. Yellowdig is a community-driven, active, and experiential learning platform, so that is the focus of our conversation today. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, in Assessment Corner this week, I'm going to share a little bit more about my new book, Redefining Student Accountability. This time, I'm going to highlight the big ideas from chapters four to seven to kind of finish off the summary that I started last time. So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. My conversation with Shanik Roy is coming up, but first, don't at me. But I want to open this week by asking you to consider the difference between what we can do versus what we should do. Now, this is something I often think about, especially when it comes to assessment, but not exclusively about assessment. It's something I think about a lot, and I recently had a couple of experiences that made me think about this difference again. Uh, two weeks ago, I was conducting the Standards-Based Learning in Action two-day workshop in Idaho Falls, and we were talking about assessment methods, and I was going over the idea that every assessment method is valid, but that every assessment method has its limitations. That, you know, as you increase the cognitive complexity of the learning, it's probably time to leave the multiple choice questions behind and utilize constructive response or performance assessment. In that explanation, I often mention that you can assess higher level thinking skills using multiple choice, but you'd have to be very skilled at item writing. Very few K-12 educators are trained to write complex items that address complex skills. It's not that, so it, so it really comes down to the question of, you know, not can you, but, but should you? Yes, in the abstract, you can assess higher level thinking skills uh, with multiple choice, but are you skilled enough in that you should? The amount of time it would take to develop a good set of multiple choice questions on higher level thinking is likely the same amount of time it would take to assess a constructive response question. So it likely won't save that much time in the end. One question is probably not enough to gauge higher level thinking. So you're probably going to need a sampling of questions that you'll have to develop. So I was thinking about that and it got me thinking about this can versus should dynamic. And it made me think about some of the other things that I've seen and heard, especially related to chat GPT and AI. I recently saw a post on social media where someone was claiming to have used ChatGPT to create a rubric. And to be honest, they were, they were kind of boasting about it. And I thought to myself, hmm, is that something we should do? Now, I'm guessing many of you might say in response to that question, why wouldn't we use AI, Tom? It's the future and creating rubrics is really challenging and I don't really have time to sit there and agonize over the wording when... There's a modern tool that can do it for me. Okay, I, I get that. Who doesn't want to reduce their workload and be more efficient with their time? I totally get it. But on the other hand, I really do believe that the person responsible for instruction and assessment should be the one or the ones, if you're working as a team, should be the ones to develop the success criteria. After all, isn't that one of the critiques of standardized testing? That the people who are responsible for instruction didn't create the assessment tool and the subsequent criteria for success. Now, I get the allure of saving time, trust me. I get all of that. But just because you can do it doesn't necessarily mean you should. And then I thought to myself, would we accept that logic from our students? I mean, the irony is not lost on me that, on the one hand, teachers and principals worry about how students might use ChatGPT to cut corners and misrepresent their work. But on the other hand, we're going to sit here and trumpet the merits of ChatGPT to quote-unquote save time. 
I guess when we do it, it's about saving time, but if our students do it, it's called cheating. Okay. Now try this one on for size and let me know what you think. Imagine a student says this to their teacher. Why shouldn't I use ChatGPT? AI is the future, and writing an argumentative essay is really challenging, and I don't really have time to sit there and agonize over the writing of an essay when there is a modern tool that can do it for me. We okay with that? My guess is no. So let me get this straight. It's okay for us to find shortcuts to do our jobs, but it's not okay for students to find shortcuts to complete their assignments. Hmm. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, that's different, Tom. Their assignments are about their learning and their grades and their results, and we can't have chat GPT essentially earning their grades, can we? Yeah, okay. And... It's our jobs, and we're still being paid, and we're still considered the professionals and the experts, but AI is doing our work for us. Right. Now, I know that seems a little harsh, and I'm not trying to be harsh, but I do, again, find it curious that it's okay for us to take professional shortcuts, but it's not okay for students. How is that not hypocritical? Now, in fact... In most cases, students are forced against their will to take the subjects they're enrolled in while we chose our professions. So maybe it should be the other way around. Because I I think we especially like AI to do things for us that we don't like doing for ourselves. We don't like necessarily building rubrics, so why not have AI do it? So why can't our students do it when they're in a forced to take a subject that they're not interested in? Now, to be clear, I'm, I'm not advocating that we let our students do that. I'm just trying to point out some of the differences in the way that this information gets presented. Now, even if a teacher said this to me, but Tom, listen, I just use ChatGPT to get me started on the rubric, and then I wordsmith it to fit the language of instruction and align it to my standards. Okay, let me try this one for you. Mr. Shimmer, I just use ChatGPT to get me started on my essay, and then I wordsmith it to fit the language I typically use when I write. I still don't think we'd be okay with that. I know that there are many layers and angles to think about when it comes to ChatGPT. Probably many that we haven't even thought of yet. And trust me, I'm definitely one who seeks to embrace new technology and thinks we need to adapt to the natural evolution of things in our society. However, I think there's a very important conversation to be had about the ethics of ChatGPT and AI in general. And the question of ethics really comes down to the difference between can and should. Yes, we can use artificial intelligence for a lot of things. But should we? If we go too far down that road of allowing AI to do our work for us, then will we at some point become redundant? And will we end up manifesting this self-fulfilling prophecy that AI is going to replace humans in the workplace? The ethics of ChatGPT and artificial intelligence for me is probably a much more important conversation than just thinking about all the things that artificial intelligence can do for us. Joining me this week for the interview is Seanak Roy. Seanak founded Yellowdig in 2015, which is an online community-driven active and experiential learning platform. Seanak graduated with a degree in mechanical engineering from ITT Bombay and completed his graduate studies at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And prior to founding Yellowdig, Seanak spent a decade advising global companies on techno- technological strategies and on growth. Seanak, I want to welcome you to the podcast. Tom, great to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, it's great to have you here. This is a little bit of a, a veering off the path for me in terms of who I bring out of the podcast, but I am very interested in educational technology and certainly post-pandemic, we've seen an explosion in the number of platforms that are available and trying to cut through some of the noise and figure out where is the substance and where do we actually get to that. So I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. But before we get into that uh, substance uh, of our conversation, Shanak, can you just Tell listeners a little bit more about your career, your professional journey, and kind of what led you to a place where you decided to found Yellowdig and, and get into the educational space. Yeah, you know, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, a lot of people who start education companies are probably educators themselves. So sometimes mm-hmm. I've seen students who have gone through uh, 
uh, a college experience that they see all the flaws in college and they kind of come up with a big idea and they start a company. And I'm actually, I don't fit any of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, my journey is I'm a mechanical engineer by training. As you saw, I grew up in India, went to undergrad there in IIT Bombay. And after that, I moved to the U.S. Uh, in mid-2000s to do my master's in uh, engineering systems from MIT. And after that, I kind of followed the traditional path a lot of my peers were following, which is to get a job in a big company. Uh, I was with a big consulting company about 10 years doing a variety of projects across the world. And then in 2015, I followed my passion to start a technology company in a space that I'm excited about. So the space that I'm excited about is how people learn. Um, and I kind of uh, thought that uh, maybe it was a little bit of hubris that time that I kind of know the answer and have gone through education myself and maybe I have a lot of insights. So said that, okay, let's build the next platform that's going to transform learning. So which is how the whole journey started. Uh, but as you know, most startups don't just kind of launch and get Uh, going. Uh, So we went through our own ups and downs in the early years in terms of finding the true product market fit for us. So which took about six, seven years. Um, But lucky enough, um, when we actually found our footing and launched our latest product, which was Yellow Dick Engage, uh, that's when pandemic happened, which wasn't a good thing, though. But it was good for us overall. I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. in all honesty, to take the company off at that time. And uh, now fast forward, um, you know, we are lucky enough to work with over 150 universities uh, in the US, some other parts of the world, um, and uh, helping them to make their learning experience or the learning experience that they provide to their learners much more engaging. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of the highlight um, of my journey to where we okay. are today. Oh, fantastic. Um, okay, so let's get into Yellow Dig and let's, let's, I, I want to try to focus maybe more on the, uh, the K 12 audience than necessarily the university audience, uh, just because I think most of my listeners do come from the K 12 education world. Let's, let's take a, a view from 30,000 feet, if you will. What are the main features of Yellow Dig and what issue or problem in education or challenge were you trying to solve? Like what, what was the, the motive? What are the features? Take us, give us a little insight into Yellow Dig. Yeah. So Yellow Dig is in a, in a simple form, it's a community building platform where we help build communities inside the classroom and outside the classroom. And the reason we do that is because um, we think that learning happens best when learners are together in terms of learning together where they can ask questions, uh, critique each other, bring in int- interesting things that they are reading in their real life and kind of share with one another uh, to be able to kind of go to the common objective, which is get more smarter in whatever subject they're you know, learning together. So that's something it's not very controversial, by the way, uh, because yeah. people do realize that's why we have classrooms. That's why mm-hmm. we have this like two hours or four hours we spend together. But the controversial or the difficult part is that uh, just because students are together in a classroom doesn't mean they're engaging. Yeah. You know, very common. And this has been my experience to a large extent, even though I went to some of the really good colleges, universities, schools, but a vast majority of education is designed around this idea that if students are together physically and they are kind of, you know, in the classroom, they are going to actually engage better than they are, you know, not together. You know, they're doing their own things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and in the real world, as we know, it's kind of quite hard to engage those students and it doesn't really happen that way. It takes a lot of effort from the teachers who mm-hmm. make the classroom experience a lot more engaging, a lot more active. Um, so, what we try to do is to use technology to reduce the work of the instructors because technology can do a lot of things in the back end, which you don't have to really do um, mm-hmm. and naturally try to engage the learners in the, in the fun or the joy of learning. And I call it mm-hmm. joyful learning. If you are really learning together and kind mm-hmm. of helping each other out. Right. Okay. I don't know an online technological platform that does not claim to build community. So Shanak, what's the difference? What What is the separator from your perspective? And I know you're biased because you're the founder, but you got to tell us what is different about your platform versus so many others that all talk about building community? What's the unique sort of secret sauce, if you will? Yeah, great question. I think, you know, 
what I would say is that in terms of building communities, if we dig in a little bit more, like how do we typically build communities, especially online, in one end of the spectrum, you have things like discussion boards, which is used very often, especially in higher education, also in K-12, we have seen where, um, you know, in some fashion, uh, the teacher would say that, why don't you go post a thought or something in our community, you know, by Sunday night, and then maybe respond twice to two other people to drive engagement, because you know, it's sometimes hard to drive engagement without a clear instruction around what it is. And sometimes those discussion posts also get graded um, in terms of the quality of the conversation or the quality of the contribution to make sure that it's a valuable you know, experience. Mm-hmm. The problem there is that it's not a community. It's mostly an assignment you know, that mm-hmm. people will do and it kind of get assessed for based on their, how they write it or they wrote about it. On the other end of the spectrum is sometimes the idea, which is there is a community. Let's say you create a Facebook group. You, you know, although I won't rececommend using Facebook group because it's not compliant <laughs> and you know all sorts of things yeah. happen in Facebook. Yeah. You don't want to get your data out there. But <laughs> right. in theory, you can actually use a Facebook group or a WhatsApp group or any other group and say that students just go there and engage with one another. And I've seen that strategy also where you have this discussion area in an online experience where you are supposed to go and ask questions and engage with one another, maybe share resources, what happens? Maybe five people will jump in, especially the ones who like to talk anyhow and share a few things and it goes on for a few weeks. And after that, dead silence, right? It's a ghost town. Nobody goes there. Lots and lots of experiences like that. So the theme is that just because you have a tool and the ability to talk to one another doesn't mean you are going to engage, the community is going to come together. So technology right. doesn't equate the results. Same thing in the classroom. Like if you have you know 30 students sitting together, say that, okay, just engage with one another, nothing happens. Like it's chaos and nobody does anything. Right. You need a design to be able to make that happen. And that's what Yellowdig is. Okay. The critical part of Yellowdig is that we are using um, things around gameful learning. And I can get into that, what exactly we do there. But yeah ways to get the students to talk to one another, which is what we do as a platform. And then once the conversation starts happening, we try to make it, um, you know, make sure that that retains through the end of the course or whatever is the length of the community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's an interesting conversation about the spectrum, about one end versus the other and trying to bring those two together. I want to continue sort of pressing you a little bit because I think, again, a lot of technological companies and, and products make a lot of claims. And I want to make sure that we actually, as educators, we we also have to be wise consumers and we have to know what we're getting into. So on your website, and I'm quoting your website here, uh, you talk about how in yellow dig communities, learners dig deeper, they unearth new knowledge, and they lift each other up. And those, of course, are noble and lofty statements. So I want to ask you, Help me understand and help listeners understand how realistic and plausible those outcomes are through Yellowdig and and help us understand why those aren't just clever marketing phrases that you're using to draw customers in. So take us take us an insight, give us a little bit of the understanding of how learners truly do dig deeper, how they unearth that new knowledge and how they lift each other up. Yeah, no, great question. And thanks for you know, looking at our website, uh, you know, mm-hmm. to kind of give me an opportunity to kind of explain some of these things. Of course. So, you know, the way we look at it is that once you have a community and, you know, we can get into how exactly it is, it's a simple way of joining that community from your learning management system. And once you are there, all your peers are together. That part is easy to understand. So people get together. Now, what happens? How do we drive a deeper sense of learning? is by essentially making the learners, um, you know, giving them the agency to bring in discussion topics. So um, very often discussions are driven by the teachers where, you know, typically teacher would say that, oh, we are in this chemistry class. Let's say chemistry, not an exciting topic, but still, you know, you have to learn, right? You know, that's the reality of life. Yeah. This is a chemistry topic, and I have a question for you. The question is, explain this molecule and explain, you know, something, whatever it is, right? And why don't you do your own research and come back to me and give the answer? And people will go do their research. Maybe they post each other's questions and they, maybe they will read each other's things. If they Typically, people don't read. They mostly look at their own thing and make sure they get a good grade, but sometimes you do, like depending on what your, <laughs> yeah. uh, other students are posting. And there's a good reason for that. The reason is 
because that's the only way the teacher can make sure that the students are actually going deeper into the subject area, which is by mm-hmm. giving them a prompt. In Yellowdig, a big difference is that the, there are no prompts. And the prompts are essentially what we say is that each student would have to earn a certain number of points by the end of the course. And there is a point system that we have designed around it. But students can actually start discussions, meaning the teacher will give them topics, topics meaning these are the five different topics we are going to cover in the course, could be based on learning objectives or whatever way they want to define it. And students will bring in their own interesting content into the discussion. To give an example, in the same chemistry class, like, and this is a real example, by the way, like a student would go and said that, oh, I'm sitting in this dining hall and I see you know, apple juice. I'm like, okay, apple juice, I love apple juice, but what is apple juice? Let me go to Google and really see what apple juice is made of. Oh, it's like carbon, hydrogen, oxy- oxygen, this, uh, this organic compounds. But, but is it just three molecules? Is that what makes apple juice so tasty and fragrance and all that? So, you know, these kind of inquiry people have, people are always very curious about things. It's just that it doesn't get activated, especially in the classroom. Right. Hard to do because you have limited time. But if you have a community which is online, which is 24-7, with a, with, with a permission to, for the students to be active and bring in interesting ideas from their point of view without getting judged, magic happens. And the reason magic happens is because students themselves get motivated to actually share interesting things and kind of maybe look smart in front of other kids, but then also start to discuss interesting ideas with one another. Mm-hmm. That is the big thing that we have done, which drives deeper learning. And what we mean by deeper learning is, you know, any subject like organic chemistry, there are aspects of learning which we have to learn, but then it gets deeper into our mind when we actually start discussing it. You know, we start to connect it with our daily lives, like, you know, I'm drinking apple juice, that's an organic compound. There's so many other examples here. That ability to be able to connect the dots is essentially what we see as a, a huge impact and relevance, uh, you know, making learning more relevant for their own lives is how we drive engagement. So in our mind, when we build a community, it's not so much just that students are together to support each other, but they're actually mm-hmm. digging in together. It's a, it's a community of inquiry. That's the framework. I don't know if you've heard about it. John yeah. Dewey and others have done a fantastic amount of work yeah. in this area. That is one of our fundamental pillars of, driving engagement but we use actually gameful learning also to kind of build that initial level of engagement which sometimes yeah for sure so many teachers nowadays are invested in inquiry-based learning and and um, problem-based learning project-based learning looking at curiosity and and innovation so i think that's um that's a great thing to facilitate for sure because there there are many teachers that are wanting to and interested in going down that pathway, but not knowing how, or maybe not having a tool or a platform that might help them do that. So I think that's great. Um, you mentioned this earlier and, and about gamification. And I think we hear that term a lot as educators. We hear like, oh, the gamification of learning and all of that. But I would be willing to wager that many, some, many, I'm not sure how many, struggle to know exactly what that means. So what does gamification mean? And, and how does gamification and social learning technologies, how do they facilitate greater student engagement? Yes. So, you know, I completely agree with your, uh, you know, the, the kind of the motivation of the question is that, you know, gamification is not very well understood sometimes. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes we think that gamification is that like little character that will jump on the screen and <laughs> say some funny things, right? Right, I mean, right. That, that's funny, yeah. but that's not gamification. Yeah. yeah. So for gamification to happen, there has to be a shift in behavior. Um, And that's the output of any gamification. So gameful learning, I mean, everybody loves to play video games, for example, right? So the the ability for like Minecraft or Roblox, so many other kids are playing all the time. And and the reason they work so well is because they actually drive certain behavior-based outcomes that gets them super hooked into whatever they're doing. It's not about the design of the UI or UX, maybe that's also important, but it's like, how does it motivate the students to be able to engage in a deep fashion? And that is true gamification, which requires a lot of deep thinking. Um, You know, one of the harder part about designing gameful systems is that it's not quite obvious outputs. So, you know, you, you have five parameters that you change. Let's say I'm playing Roblox, right? I mean, I have these ability to create you know, my own world, and then I can create my little things, and maybe I can trade things with other people, maybe I can buy things, sell things, and there are a whole bunch of levels you unlock. 
all these things we can design, but we just don't know how it'll act in the real world unless we test it. So, right. so one of the things of gamification, which we had to do early on is to kind of design different parameters to see what the outcome is. And for us to even know the outcome, we have to first kind of have some hypothesis on what is the outcome we want. Mm-hmm. So to, to us, gamification starts with really defining the outcomes that we're looking for, and then kind of starting going backwards and see how do we design a system which kind of pushes the students naturally towards that outcome. So for us, what we're really trying to achieve through gamification is engagement, which is being able to come back. Um, engagement, not only with the platform, but with the peers, so that they are actually talking to one another, as opposed to just going in, posting and coming out. Um, mm-hmm. and, and finally, we want this uh, whole um, kind of you know, ability to kind of measure the, the value of that engagement. So is it really driving deeper learning? Is it driving retention improvements? You know, so the students are actually sticking around as a group going. So, so for us, we we define those parameters and then we have designed a game for learning. I can explain how it works. Yeah. But I think the, the critical part is that kind of understanding it actually comes down to behavior change to a large extent. And, and one of the other things, you know, before I kind of explain what it does is uh, there's a lot of good literature on gameful learning. And one mm-hmm. of the ones that I have found very helpful is uh, this whole, uh, you know, self-determination uh, theory. I don't know if you've come across that. It yep, was, yep. you know, invented late, late 90s and Edward Desai and I think Richard Ryan came up with this idea, which is what defines intrinsic motivation and the three factors, which is agency, mastery, and connectedness. So there are three mm-hmm. things that come together, drives that system. And video games have actually used it very effectively. Mm-hmm. To, to get kids super hooked into it. Uh, I think education, we are just starting to catch up. And this is, I think, see as a huge opportunity for us to use gameful learning. For us, what we do just in our system is what we have designed is what we call is an incentive strict system based on points, where students earn points based on their contribution. So we call it participation points. So for you to come in and make a post with 40 words will earn you a thousand points. Why do we give them that points? Is because it's a very fact that they actually took an action to contribute something. So that's the yeah. first type of points. The second type of points we offer to them is what we call is social points. Meaning, if we, if I created a post or a comment, to the extent my peer group find it interesting to interact with it in terms of making a comment on it or you know making a reaction to it, I, as the creator of that content, will get points. Mm-hmm. Because the very fact that I created something that others found interesting. Um, and the third type of points we offer is for, which are teacher driven points, which is the teacher can say that, oh, this is a, f- it's a really good post where you not only wrote a nice post, but you actually showed very high quality critical thinking or good analysis skills or mm-hmm. creative writing skills. So different type of skills that we want to promote. So teachers can create accolades in our platform and give them out, which amounts to certain points. So what we, what we are essentially doing there is creating a point structure where you can earn points in a variety of ways to shape your behavior in a certain direction, which is yeah. focusing your attention to the students, looking for indication of high quality contribution from the instructors, and actually very fact of taking action so that you are actually mm-hmm. proactively contributing. So some of that creates into the system and the result is what we see, very interesting. Everybody loves points, right? I mean, yeah. you know, we all love points, but <laughs> how we are earning those points is what, what is what we are gamifying. Right. Okay. Now you're going to have to square a circle for me here because uh, earlier you were talking about the importance of intrinsic motivation and self-determination. And now you have a system that is based on the distribution of points, which is maybe an external um, reward, if you will, or, or result. So help me understand the, the fusion between those two. I mean, intrinsic motivation is hard to know. There's only two ways you can know whether or not somebody is truly intrinsically motivated. One, you have to infer based on their behavior. And you mentioned behavioral change. You have to make an inference based on observation, or you have to take their word for it. If they tell you that they are intrinsically motivated, it's very hard to recognize intrinsic motivation. So, so let's talk about that. You're, you have a system that distributes points as a result of certain levels of performance, and yet we're talking about self-determination. Help me understand that. Yeah, it's a great question. So, so the, you know, one of our teachers made a really good uh, comment, which I love to say, which is the students come for the points, stay for the community. Okay. So the idea is this. The idea is that 
if you are a student, imagine that backbencher who is not typically engaged. And if you say that, oh, come to this community and engage and see all these benefits of actually kind of sharing ideas with one another, exploring topics, mm -hmm. typically they will say that, you know what, that's not good for me. I can have something else to do, right? right. So there is a need to kind of jumpstart that initial phase, which is like has some sort of a requirement. Like what we do typically is that you have to earn so many points in a course. So they will right. come for the points. So I have to do this thing. I have to say something. I have to really read some other stuff. Maybe it's super boring. I'm not interested. Still have mm -hmm. to do it because that's a requirement, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so we, we, and we make it easy and low stakes so that it's not graded. So there's no fear like, oh, I'm going to say something and somebody is going to judge me. It's mm -hmm. not great. It's automated. So everything is automatic in the system. So the points will get you into the system and start to kind of create the behavior patterns that you would want to see, which is making a post, making a comment, trying to write something that others will find interesting, right? Mm -hmm. And things like that. But what ends up happening, and this actually happens, and we have done a polling of students who have adopted our technology over, let's say, six, seven weeks consecutively. Mm -hmm. Every week we'll ask them the question that, what do you think about Yellowdick, right? Mm -hmm. Week one is always like, what is this new thing? And why do I have to do this thing? Right. <laughs> I was happy to kind of do my exercise and get a grade and I'm done with it. What is this yeah. new thing that I have to kind of contribute things into the thing? So a lot of questions, contribution, unsure, un, you know, I'm, whether, I'm not sure whether it's going to be valuable. Week two, what happens is, yeah, I kind of see this thing. It's a little bit of work, but I, it's not that bad because I had to get to get here from my peers. I mean, week two is like mm -hmm. slightly better. By week eight or, you know, towards the end, the whole thing changes where it's like, oh, you know what? This is new because I learned so much from my peer group. It was fun because I talked about mm -hmm. it. It wasn't just boring. So that's where the shift happens. The intrinsic motivation mm -hmm. shift happens over time, uh, especially around as they see they have more agency, right? They're actually choosing what they want to talk about. Right. The mastery that they're gaining because they're learning from each other and connectedness. They're feeling they're part of a community. So it goes back to the, the self-determination theory, but you know, in a way which kind of actually will make this happen. Right. You got to draw them in in some way, I suppose, and get them to experience it before you start to see those shifts and the transfer. And I think that happens in a lot of situations where initially things begin as an external kind of response, and then we start to see the value in what we're doing, and then the motivation shifts. And I think it speaks to a lot of the complexities about human behavior, which is, I don't think it's siloed. I think we can be both. I think we have some external and some intrinsic motivation, and those can be a Venn diagram between the two. I'm also curious about, you know, when I was when I was looking through the website and trying to get a sense of the product, I was very curious about, you draw a line between Yellow Dig and faculty engagement, which I found very interesting. So what is the connection between Yellow Dig and faculty satisfaction, faculty retention, uh, and just the whole idea of, of faculty feeling re-energized about the profession? I just found yeah. that a very curious approach. So yeah, t talk about that a little bit. Yes, so, you know, it's a great point. And this happened, you know, slowly as we were getting out of the pandemic, you know, we reached out to many of our faculty users and asked them questions about what they think about Yellowdick, what was their experience out of the whole thing. And one thing we heard from them, which is many of them said that, oh, I, I love going to Yellowdick in the morning with a cup of coffee because then I just read what my students are saying. Right. Um, so, and then some others said that, you know, I was amazed to see that I was learning from my students and, you know, they are excited about what they're learning. I mean, imagine this, like there's so many <laughs> faculties, they would yeah. love to hear something from the students. They, they just don't hear anything from them. Right. right. So, right. Right. I, I think, you know, anybody who is dedicating themselves to teaching has a thing in them. They want to change lives. And part of that is they want to see their students engaged. And we are living in this era where it is extremely hard to engage their students, even though we want to believe that just because they're sitting in the classroom, they're engaging. It's not the case. Right? <laughs> yeah, no. no. So, you know, I think most faculties know that. So I think, you know, this is what it is. Like we are trying to use, you know, I would say the, some of the best parts of social media, mm -hmm. you know, which is kind of engaging by itself, but applying it to learning and be on the side of the faculty so that we are, we are seeing them, good things happen. So, I think what we find from our faculties is that it reduces time, by the way. So if you are, you know, in K-12, it may not be as relevant because they're, you know, in higher education, especially discussion boards are increasingly used, but used in a way which increases faculty workload. They have to, you know, grade students, posts and comments. Mm -hmm. It's always very uncomfortable. 
then you have to respond to student questions and you have to be in uh, office hours once a week, even though nobody shows up, maybe who knows, uh, but you still have to be there if somebody comes up and hopefully engages with you. It, it, it actually drives a lot of workload for faculties, even anxiety, you know, just to make yeah. sure that students are engaged without the results very often. Um, and what we yeah. do is we truly drive that community. So, um, yeah. The, the prerequisite for faculties is sort of for us to adopt us is that we, we change the paradigm slightly where we we see students as not only kind of somebody who's just taking information, but they're actually active participants. So, right. uh, so, so th there is a shift there as well. So it might see, seem like a little bit of work because now they are speaking and they're kind of sharing their ideas. But I think if you love that part, I think it's going to be a great experience. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, just I never I never thought of that before. You always we always think about the students and their experience, but thinking about teachers and and their also their experience with their students in this community and the efficiency of the workload, but also the effectiveness of of some of the opportunities is is potentially there for sure. Okay, last one before we finish up with our our two questions that I always finish with. You know, obviously post-pandemic and during the pandemic, we saw online learning, hybrid learning growing. Um, but I'm wondering from your perspective, you know, with the onslaught of platforms and programs that are out there, um, what do we need to watch for as, as educators who are trying to become more savvy consumers of, of platforms and products that are made available to us? What role do you think, let's talk about educators, parents, regulators, maybe even governments, Let's talk about the role that they play in ensuring that that companies are are not just over promising and and giving the slick sales pitch, and but under delivering in terms of what what they're offering. So, what do, what's the role of all of those organizations in that, and how do we maintain make sure that we maintain a safe space for students um, as they learn and grow online? Yeah. Uh, so you know, my my belief is that. You know, in education, we have many stakeholders, like we have students, we have educators, we have family, we have mm -hmm. principals or administration, we have regulators, we have tech companies, we have researchers, um, so many stakeholders who are trying to drive change as we go through this massive change, you know, through the pandemic, and now there's so much of growth in yeah. digital and online learning and interest in it. I think the key thing I, I, you know, for me is to make the right decision is to really listen to the educators and who are using technology to help better learning for the students because they don't always know the truth. You know, if you use a, uh, use a tool um, and, you know, like Yellowdig or anything else, the first person who will have a really concrete feedback is the, the, the educator and the student, essentially. Mm -hmm. and, and what happens sometimes is that, you know, technology choices are made at a very high level where the school says that we are going to go this path because it sounds good and everything, you know, you know, sounds good doesn't mean they actually work good in reality. So having this real um, kind of a feedback loop, which is connected on the ground in anything new that is happening is important so that those things, the, the best tools get scaled up. Mm -hmm. um, because as you say, there are not a lot of things that are coming into this space. You know, people are kind of creating new things with a different vision and not everything works out as we know in reality. Um, the other thing I, I kind of really feel is that it's very important to measure the outcomes um, with any technology. You know, we, we sometimes, you know, create technology with the assumption that this will work like this and this mm -hmm. will create this result. But assumption and reality is very different, you know, and we all know that because there, it's a very complex system. We have not only the technology, how the technology is deployed, what kind of behavior change it drives, how are there like unintended consequences because of that. Um, so I, I think that it almost like, you know, creating a, the, the best parallel I see always with like the pharmaceutical world, like you, you're creating a pill. The pill, before you give it a, you know, to a patient, you really do have to do a control trial to see if how this pill behaves in certain set of populations and then can probably share the data and then scale it up. But the same thing needs to happen in education. And we do believe that. And, 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 and the reason we do that is because we actually make our data available. Um, if uh, somebody's using Yellowdig, the data is available directly. They can download it. They can, uh, we have API hooks. They can pull the data and they can do all sorts of studies. And we have our partners doing studies on our platform. Okay. And we like it because if something is not working, we want to know about it and we want to you know, make the product changes so that it kind of works. I, I think that is a critical part here. And, and after that, of course, you know, things will happen as it moves up and hopefully the regulations will follow and 
other things. Right. But I think the critical part is the educators and the students. Their feedback is the most important. Yeah, I do appreciate your focus on outcomes. I think sometimes it's very easy to get uh, distracted by uh, technology, the slickness of it, um, and and not remind ourselves that it really still is about learning outcomes. It's still about the student's achievement. It's still about them getting to levels of thinking and depths of understanding that that really do maximize their opportunities going forward. So, uh, and I was going to ask you actually about any data that's available. So you're saying it is available for people. And, and I love the fact that you're doing some ongoing uh, studies and and reflection on on whether or not the product is is serving its purpose and and actually achieving the outcomes you're hoping it will achieve. I think that's a, a good sign that you continue to do that and make that make that data available to people and and let them you know think about um, whether or not it's it's successful for them and whether or not it's the right product for them as well. So appreciate that. It's been a really interesting conversation because this is certainly something that is not, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about and uh, really appreciate you, uh, you, you, you being here. We've got two questions as we finish up, uh, Shanak, as we uh, always finish up every interview with. The first one's a little heavier. The last one's a, a little lighter. But the, these two questions, the first one, and you can take this in any direction you want to, but it's a simple question, and that is educationally speaking, what keeps you up at night? Well, I mean, for for me, uh, you know, the most important thing is that, you know, we are building a, a platform which a lot of hundreds of thousands of students are using us. So, you know, for us, the most important thing is that are we saying the right outcome that we want to create? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so, you know, we, we pay a lot of attention in terms of getting feedback from our users. Um, and as you said, right, not always the data is the one that we want to see. So being mm-hmm. able to see data that we don't like and we don't agree and don't understand and then being able to kind of dig in is what is the most important thing for us as a company. And, you know, in education space, I mean, what I really hope we do is that, you know, we, we now live in this era now where unless we kind of really innovate the next vision for education, we might be in a, in a difficult situation because... Mm-hmm. I think the world has moved on in a variety of ways where uh, learning is a lot more real time and dynamic and people are asking how, you know, learning applies to the work they're going to do, you know, cost of education is high. So that, that is another challenge. And then also sometimes the, the value of the degree is on the question, right? So there's so many things that are happening. So I think what I really hope is that, and we have very smart people around us. I mean, I think it's a matter of getting the right people in the right conversations to be able to mm-hmm. create solutions that we can test out on the ground and figure out what works, what doesn't work and scale up the ones that work very massively so that it can have a big impact. Um, I, th- I think all of this are, we have done in many times in many industries. I, I, I hope that we can get this done for this one because you know it's a tough time, but I, I also see there's a huge opportunity for us in the next five, 10 years to kind of make something really amazing happen. Yeah, the, the 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 pace of change in terms of platforms, learning outcomes, goals, et cetera, is is rapid. And I know a lot of teachers feel overwhelmed by it. And if there's any type of tool or something that can help create some efficiency and effectiveness, I think that's something that uh, many would be drawn to for sure. Okay, let's end on a lighter note. Um, simple question. I love food and you live in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. So this question is quite simple. Where's the best place to eat in Cherry Hill, New Jersey? Well, <laughs> there's so many places, but I, I think that my answer would be, look, I, I grew up in India, so I know my Indian food pretty of well. Of course. So if, yeah. you, if you want to... Uh, All right, best Indian food in Cherry Hill. Where is it? <laughs> yes. Uh, there's, there's <laughs> a, you know, it's not Cherry Hill, by the way. It's a town next to Cherry Hill where I used to go. Oh, okay. Lot, which is, okay. It's called Haddonfield. It's, uh, okay. It's, All right. And, and uh, the, the Indian place I used to go a lot and I still go is called Cross Culture. Okay. Uh, I love the name. Uh, I also know that uh, run by a family owned, uh, you know, it's been there for a long time. It's been there for a long time and really good food. So great ambience, good food. If you're in this area, you want to try some Indian food, definitely look them up. Cross love culture it. is the name. Yeah. Cross culture. Love it. Yeah. This is just me in all my travels, collecting all of the different restaurants I need to go to when I get to these different, uh, different areas. Uh, listeners, uh, you can find uh, Shanak on LinkedIn. Would also encourage you to, for yourselves, check out uh, www.yellowdig.com uh, to to poke around there. Um, Shanak, if if listeners are going on the website, is there a place that they can maybe get a demo or see a video or something, or they can get a sense of how the platform works? 
Yes, so uh, there are lots of videos available. If you don't mm-hmm. just want to take a look at it, uh, you just go to our website. We recently did a conference. Uh, it's a fully virtual conference where we invited about uh, 30 of our partners to come okay. and speak about you know, student engagement strategies. So there are lots right. of video, all those videos are online now. Uh, please look it up. If you're interested, you can just sign up Excellent. and get download all those videos. And of, if you want to talk to us, yeah, there are easy ways to kind of reach out to us uh, through the website. Fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, Shanak, uh, thanks for joining me this week. I uh, really appreciate the opportunity to, to talk to you and learn a little bit more about Yelladeg. Uh, thanks. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much, Tom. Uh, appreciate the invitation. It was great uh, speaking with you. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to pick up where I left off last time and share a bit more about my new book that is finally released. It's now available, Redefining Student Accountability, A Proactive Approach to Teaching Behavior Outside the Gradebook. Now, if you're new to the podcast and haven't listened to the last episode, then I would really encourage you to go back and listen to the last assessment corner from episode 101, just to get an idea of what the book is all about, because I don't really want to repeat that here for those of you who are regular listeners. So maybe pause right now this episode, go back, fast forward to the assessment corner piece if you haven't listened to it, and get a sense of what the book's all about. Because last time I introduced you to the first three chapters and highlighted the big ideas around assessment, the PLC at work model, and the three-tiered framework of RTI, MTSS, and PBIS. The first three chapters really highlight how all of those can service the notion of teaching students to be more responsible, right? The idea that these are not separate silos, but they can actually feed the process. So let's pick it up from here. In chapter four, that chapter is called Teaching and Reinforcing Responsibility. The chapter focuses on the details around how we actually go about the business of teaching kids the skills and the habits of someone who is responsible. If we want, if we, you know, if we want kids to be responsible, we have to teach it. We can't expect that the punishing of the absence of responsibility is going to teach students how to be more responsible. So this chapter goes into detail as to how we define responsibility, identifying criteria, teaching it, and reinforcing it. Now, I know the topic of reinforcement is one that can stir up a little bit of debate, but the approach to reinforcement in the chapter is really one that talks about reinforcement as a social effect, not a tangible. It's very important when we talk about uh, reinforcement that we don't conflate reinforcement with rewards. Reinforcement is a social acknowledgement, social feedback. Rewards tend to be tangibles. Reinforcement is a naturally occurring phenomenon. And it occurs in schools, whether we like it or not, it's going to occur when we provide descriptive feedback, as I mentioned, in terms of the degree to which a student has been responsible. So chapter four gets into all of that. Chapter five moves into uh, thinking about correcting irresponsibility and supporting responsibility. Essentially, this chapter examines what we do when students fall short of the desired levels of responsibility. Despite all of our best efforts in teaching kids what it means to be responsible, there will be some students who fall short. That's the very nature of the three-tiered framework where you can expect students to have tier two and tier three needs. Now, in this chapter, I highlight the difference between discipline and punishment and the importance of having a trauma-informed focus, as well as taking a restorative approach. So all of those kind of get wrapped into that chapter as well. I also get into some of the systems and routines that you can put in place in a school to hold, hold kids accountable without being punitive. Now, that section is similar to the one I wrote about in Grading from the Inside Out, and that's really what this book is all about because I wrote that chapter in Grading from the Inside Out and decided to to, to, to make a whole book out of it, right? Okay, chapter six of the book is called Prioritizing and Reporting on Behavioral Attributes. And this highlights really the idea and the importance of prioritizing and reporting those attributes, including responsibility. Remember what adults give their attention to is what children and teenagers will come to believe is important. So sometimes we have to take advantage of existing structures and try utilizing existing systems So reporting out on responsibility and other behavioral attributes and characteristics gives them the attention they deserve. At the same time, our reporting systems need to be manageable. We need to make sure it's both effective for students and families, but also efficient for teachers and principals. So we have to get into that as well in the chapter. And the final chapter, chapter seven, focuses on self-regulating student accountability. And the highlights of this chapter really include focusing on SEL competencies and teaching students how to self-assess and peer assess and self-regulate themselves in terms of their own responsibility. Now, 
again, in schools that have high rates of antisocial behavior and irresponsibility, et cetera, you're probably going to take a more teacher-centered approach that creates a more structured approach, parameters, predictability around what it means to be responsible and to fulfill the promise of other behavioral attributes. But in schools where there are low rates of antisocial behavior, in other words, most of the students are responsible for the most part, then we can focus and transfer to the students where they can become self-regulatory of their social and emotional competencies. The end goal has to be teaching students how to self-manage and self-regulate their own responsibility and those other desirable behavioral attributes that we all know will serve them once they leave the K-12 system. So chapter seven really is about transferability. It's about how do we transfer all of this from being a teacher-centered experience to a student-centered experience. And depending upon where your school is, there may be different entry points for your school. So that's the book. And uh, as I said last time, I'm, I'm really excited about this book because it brings together a number of different things that I've been passionate about for so many years. Uh, my hope is that educators will find it thought-provoking, insightful, and practical, and I hope it finally leads to the end of this bullshit narrative that people try to peddle when they claim to be teaching students responsibility by punishing their irresponsibility. Again, for some reason, when a student has an academic misstep, we respond by saying, let me help you, let me show you, let me teach you. But when it's a behavioral misstep, we typically respond by saying, stop that, don't do that, that's inappropriate. It's time for us to put our money where our mouths are. If we believe that students need to learn important characteristics and develop certain attributes that will serve them in any walk of life, then we need to get down to the business of actually teaching them that which they are not currently able to do. I hope you'll give the book a read. I look forward to any feedback that you might have about it. Okay, that's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. Also, please email the podcast, tomshimmerpod at gmail.com if you've got questions for Assessment Corner or if you have any suggestions or feedback for me about the podcast. And a reminder to check the show notes for links for the upcoming professional learning event in Las Vegas. That's the Assessment Center Conference at the end of May. Links in the show notes for that. You can find the information on the Solution Tree website as well. Next time, my guest will be Dylan William. We talk all things assessments, fabulous conversation with Dylan. In fact, it's going to be part one of a two-part conversation. So the next two podcasts will feature Dylan William. And then we'll head into the summer. And I'll have more about what's going to happen with the podcast over the summer. I haven't quite finalized plans yet, but looking forward to those two conversations uh, with Dylan William over the next two episodes. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, of course. But a rating and review on any platform will help grow the podcast's reach. And if you like what you hear, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends, your colleagues, or on social media. I would really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone.